Good evening, everyone. Uh, nice to see you all. My name is Nettie. If there's anyone that doesn't know my name. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the solitary retreat that I did uh, a month or so ago. And I was thinking about why to do that besides the general sort of curiosity about what that would be like to talk about. And I think the real motivation is if anything from this talk inspires any of us to try something that's a little difficult, but that maybe would be good for our practice, whether that be doing a day sit, if you haven't done that before, or thinking about doing a session, a retreat, or maybe sewing a rakasu and thinking about taking the precepts, or maybe thinking about doing a solitary retreat, or sitting a little bit more. Anything that maybe each of us doesn't quite feel that we're able to do, I'm hoping maybe this talk might encourage people to feel, I think I am going to try doing something that I feel a little scared of doing, but maybe would be good for me to do. So that's the motivation for the talk. So uh, just, just some basics about what I did. So I went to a place called Land of Calm Abiding Hermitage. It's in uh, on the California coast, south of Monterey, north of San Luis Obispo. Uh, it's run by the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, set up by Lama Zopa. So it's a Tibetan uh, retreat center, but it's open to practitioners of any tradition. So Zen practitioners go there and people from contemplative Christian traditions may go there. So anybody who wants to uh, do a solitary retreat can, can go there. Um, I originally was going to go to Tassajara for a three-month practice period, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, they the two that I could have gone to both got cancelled. So this was kind of a creative kind of like, well, I can't go to Tassajara. How else can I turn this into something fruitful rather than a disappointment? And uh, just looked up various retreat centers and found one that was taking people. So um, Land of, of Calm Abiding has got five little huts. Each person has a hut and they're far away from each other. So for the 29 days that I was there, I didn't speak to anybody. I did see the caretaker in the distance a couple of times and that felt kind of nice, like, oh, there's a person. Um, but I didn't speak to anyone. There's uh, no, no Wi-Fi or cell phone or radio or anything like that. And uh, that was probably the thing that I was most curious to see is how would I be without the technology? Because the technology, although it can be really wonderful, does have the capacity to be a distraction. And 
I know I myself do do let it be that for me sometimes. So I was curious to see how would it be when I didn't have that. And uh, the only books that I took with me were Dharma books, the sutras. So there wasn't anything that I could just uh, sort of escape into. So I was curious to see how that was, and it turned out to be completely fine. So that that was that was a nice discovery. That uh, to not speak to anybody for twenty nine days and to not have the news or email or any of those things was actually completely fine. It was uh, a nice reminder that that we are very capable of things that we don't always think we're capable of. The, the landscape was um, oak forest with meadows in between, so like patches of, of oak and then meadows, and there was pines, um, a beautiful sort of brooks and rivers running through the landscape. Um, and it's interesting that it's called a solitary retreat because I actually did not feel solitary at all I felt completely connected to a whole lot of things I was surprised how connected I felt to Shakyamuni Buddha um, how connected I felt to the people who built land of calm abiding who had the vision of making a solitary receipt retreat center and had gone to the trouble of building these little huts and putting solar panels in and putting in septic systems and creating a road to get in there. And, well, well, the road was already there. But making the whole place happen, you know, um, I felt very connected to them. I felt uh, a lot of connection to all of the ancestors who took the teachings of the Buddha, memorized them, verbally transmitted them for a number of centuries, and then started writing them down. And then people in China and in Tibet translating them into other language, into Tibetan and into Chinese. And then people later translating them into English. I felt very connected to all of that while I was sitting there by myself. I didn't feel at all solitary. I felt very connected to this Sangha, to, to, to all of us, to, to all of you, uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it was, it's the power of the Sangha that kind of gave me the, the courage, maybe you could say, the belief in myself to even do such a thing. Uh, but also one of the things that I did have with me, which was very comforting, was uh, I did take my laptop and I downloaded class series um, that Kokyo had given over the years here at Santa Cruz Zen Center and I was able to listen to them. And so, of course, I heard the voices of some of you who are here right now, you know, over the years. You know, I listened to talks from 2011 and 2016 and 2017 and 2020. Um, and just hearing people's voices just felt wonderful. Uh, and in, in a way, that was probably the closest thing to having company that I had when, when I would be in the kitchen. I would just turn on one of the talks and just have that on, not not so much in the background. It was 
I was really listening, but I was listening. Uh, it was company as well as, as being uh, a form of study. So that was wonderful. So it, it, calling it a solitary retreat doesn't quite feel right. I felt very much a part of everything, which, of course, we are a part of everything. We're not solitary at all. And I also felt part of the landscape, um, which I'll speak a little bit about the landscape in, 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 in a little while. So I felt supported by the plants and the animals and the, the mountains and the, the valleys. So uh, reflecting on what is helpful for a solitary retreat, I think the first thing is a location. We need a place. And I'm going to try, and people know that I'm a little bit technology shy, but I'm going to try and screen share a photo of the hut that I stayed in. I'm going to do that right now. Oh, are you seeing it? No. Oh, dear. We try one more time. I'm not going to try. Okay, I'm not going to try. <laughs> um, it was just a little hut. I think it's about 20 foot by 20 foot. And uh, it just has all the basic things one would need. There was a little kitchen, a little bathroom, um, a room with a beautiful altar and a spot to sit in the traditional Tibetan style of a, a meditation box. And it was lovely to sit in a meditation box. It's kind of, it helps you stay put. It's just a, I don't know how to describe it. It's just a space that you sit in, but it's made of wood and it, it kind of helps keep you there. It's well, it's a well-defined space uh, facing the altar and out the window there was a mountain with a pinnacle of rock because this place was not that far from the pinnacles. This beautiful pinnacle of rock that they named Maitreya Peak. And so I got to see Maitreya Peak out the window uh, all the time it was just there in my view. And in the morning, the morning star would come over the horizon right above the peak. And so you'd see the star above this peak and you'd actually see it move. So I could actually get the feeling of the earth moving because the star I knew was just kind of still and it's the earth that was moving. And it was this wonderful thing in the morning, seeing the morning star and Maitreya Peak just tilting underneath that star. And knowing that that's the star that Shakyamuni Buddha uh, saw under the Bodhi tree. And I was looking at it too. And all of us look at it in the mornings when we, when we look up at Venus. Uh, so a place, a suitable place where there's no distractions. No distractions from the, kind of the, the sort of noise of the human world. It, it was lovely to have no sound of cars and no sounds well, mostly no sounds of traffic. It was really lovely not to have those sorts of human sounds, human-created sounds. The other thing that I think is very helpful is a pretty firm schedule, a fairly tight, disciplined schedule. And each week my schedule got a little, I added a little bit. In the, in the first week I was able to sit seven, 40 minutes, 
periods a day. And between, you know, the beginning of the day or near the beginning of the day, I'd do a service. And near the end of the day, I would do a service. Um, and I would have periods of time for studying and uh, periods of time for memorizing. I was trying to sort of memorize our ancestors and memorize um, the Makahanya Haramita Shingyo and the Daihi Shindarani, sort of memorizing the non-English sutras that we have. Um, I did go for a run every day because I like running. And uh, I think that's not really conventional to, to have sort of vigorous exercise in a in a retreat setting but I did maybe I'm a, a little a little bit of a rule breaker anyway so that was part of my personality to do that but it was lovely to go running it had a very contemplative feeling and it was it felt like a way to integrate what I was studying with the landscape you know I would be studying these teachings and then I would be moving through the landscape and contemplating them as I was looking at the trees and the birds and the sky. And I was able to actually run to a spot where I could see the ocean each day. And the, the ocean is such a powerful metaphor for us in, in Zen. And just to see it for a few moments, I would just see it and say, hello. And then I would turn around and head back. Um, and just to see that vast expanse of water, which is like, Wooden nature pervading everything, just incredible expanse. It was lovely to see that just for a few moments each day. So a, a supportive schedule and one that you can stick to. So uh, in the second week, I added an extra sit, and the third and fourth week, I was added another sit. So I was doing nine periods of 40-minute zazen a day. And so with that, and all the other elements there was really very little time that wasn't scheduled um, there was just time for cooking food and then doing eating the food and then doing the dishes and I think that that's good it was good to have the, uh, a very full schedule um, maybe for some people having no schedule their mind would remain completely at ease and settled but I had a feeling that if I didn't have a strong schedule I'm not sure what my mind would have done I think it would have just sort of floated about wondering what to do next. It, it just, just doing Zazen seemed like the very best way to use my time. Uh, I think it's important that we like ourselves too, if we're going to, to go away, like just a general sense of self, self-regard and at the same time, not too much of an identification with ourselves as well. So it's like, uh, both from the relative and the ultimate perspective, from the relative perspective, a, a faith in ourselves, a trust in ourselves, a general appreciation of ourselves, and then from the emptiness side to not be too attached in, about, to ourselves at all and be able to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves seriously. Let's see. But one thing I noticed was how important important food is like I did think about food a lot I didn't actually quite take enough food so uh, I had to be very very careful uh, measuring it all out and I get containers and put little lines all the way up like the rice jar so I knew exactly how much rice I could have each day so I wouldn't run out and it was quite humbling 
to see just how important food is in our lives. And especially when there's not a lot of it, it becomes even more kind of important. Uh, and I finished the whole retreat with literally some black tea leaves, some nutritional yeast and some leftover cocoa. That was it. Everything else got used up. Uh, so th there was something kind of fun too about that. I was thinking about it as uh, sort of a dignified simplicity. When we don't have too much, I think we appreciate things more. If, if there's too much scarcity, then it's, then it's uh, demoralizing and there's nothing really dignified about literally not having enough. But when you have just enough, a kind of dignified simplicity, everything is so beautiful. I, I still remember the, the sensation of getting the last grain of rice, you know, out of the pot and being so happy to have it. You know. One of the teachings from many years ago that has inspired me a lot is the three pillars of Zen, great faith, great doubt, great zeal. And I thought of them a lot while I was there. Great faith in the teachings, great faith in Zazen, great faith in the forms that we have, like bowing and chanting, that they are really valuable and they're very, very helpful to practice. And they're just wonderful just in and of themselves. So sort of faith in that, faith in ourselves. Uh, not Obviously not a blind faith. This is sort of an intelligent faith thoughtful faith, um, great doubt. I love great doubt. Great doubt is not corrosive doubt. Great doubt is curiosity, openness, a, a curious openness to learn, to try something new, to be present, to not be distracted from the present, to consider that the present is always interesting. Like it's always interesting. The present is never not interesting. That's that's really what great doubt is, is to be open, open to that, open to be continually interested in now and not disinterested in it, but interested in it. And then great zeal, great effort. And that's where in some ways having the schedule comes in, it helps to structure the effort and make the effort possible. So great effort. Uh, a couple of things about the actual place, because I think people might be interested to hear some of the animals that, that I saw there. Um, twice I saw bobcats, well, Twice I saw a bobcat. That's a better way of seeing it. It might have been the same bobcat. And it was sitting on a hill and just looking up at the sun. It was like the morning sun, maybe 10 a.m. And it was just looking at the sun. And both times I came, I was running and I ran around the corner and gave it a fright. And it was just, well, the first time I ran around the corner and I saw it, it didn't see me. And I was able to just watch it for a while. It was quite close. And that was just beautiful, watching this bobcat. And then I started making little sounds, like <laughs> just made little squeaky sounds until it noticed me, and then off it went. And the second time, we just we gave each other a fright. I came around the bend quite, 
like quickly and it was there and we were very close to each other and we both jumped and it just jumped and turned and its little tail bobbed up and down just like its name it bobbed um, I didn't see a mountain lion although I did hear that another retreatant did but after it rained the 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 track that I ran on was kind of like clay and it would get very, very mushy after the rain and there'd be fresh mountain lion prints in it in the mornings when I'd go for my run. So I would be following the same tracks as the mountain lion. And I had this image of our lion that sits, that holds up Manjushri on our altar here at Santa Cruz Zen Center. And, uh, that Sally made for us, Sally, who's a, a sculptor. And I thought about it as like that, that lion just popped over to land of calm abiding hermitage just to get a bit of exercise. And after it had done a bit of running, it's going to head back to the altar at Santa Cruz Zen Center. And that just felt so nice. They're the kinds of things that my mind did when I was running. It was lovely. I saw a skunk on the trail sipping water out of a puddle and it didn't want to let, get out of the way when I came along. It just stayed there sipping water out of a puddle and I kind of just edged my way around it. So that was interesting. Um, I found a little vole, like a blind, little blind mole. I called it a vole. I, I never got to look it up to check exactly, but it had no sort of functioning eyes and had a long sort of pro proboscis nose that was kind of pink and it it seemed to have got itself disoriented and was ro rolling around on the trail but I could see a little hole that looked like its hole as if it was trying to get there so I carefully nudged it with a stick and and helped it and when it got to the hole it kind of spiraled down the hole as if when it was rolling around on the trail it was trying to spiral down but there was nothing to spiral down it was just rolling around on its belly and so I nudged it across and then it spiraled down. So that was a lovely experience. And there were lizards and geckos and salamanders after the rain and bats and owls and eagles and squirrels and blue jays and lots of deer, of course. So that was part of the not feeling solitary, of course, was just being with all of that. And at night time, there were mice in the, in the ceiling. So I had to wear earplugs to sleep. But even that was nice just to, to know that they were going about their business and that the, the place was very healthy. It was, a, it was a very pristine, natural environment. So there was a real sense of the animals leading their good, full, happy lives. They weren't leading modified having to adapt to human-type lives. They were just doing their lives, and, and that felt lovely to, to witness that and be, be in that and hopefully not be a disturbance, too much of a disturbance to that. Um, I did want to read a case from the Blue Cliff Record. It's only short. Case 32, Elder Ting Stands Motionless. Elder Ting asked Lin Chi, what is the great meaning of the Buddhist teaching? Lin Chi came down off his meditation seat, grabbed and held Ting, gave him a slap and then pushed him away. 
Ting stood there motionless. A monk standing by said, Elder Ting, why do you not bow? Just as Ting bowed, he suddenly was greatly enlightened. What I love about this story is he was, he was a teacher and he was a student and the student asked the teacher a question and the teacher was vigorous with him. But what I love about the story is the teacher was vigorous with him. He was standing there in a state of kind of shock and then a Sangha member, someone who was watching the whole thing said, Ting, why don't you bow? And that encouragement, that encouragement from this other monk who was watching, who wanted him to wake up, who was witnessing this exchange, said, why don't you bow? And Ting heard that encouragement and he bowed. And at that moment, the universe cracked open for him. It's a beautiful example in the Cohen stories of, of this relationship, how we can help each other with our practice. And there is no way I would have done a solitary retreat without the support of the Sangha encouraging me and giving me the sense that it's possible. It wouldn't have happened. So I was kind of like, do I bow? I don't know what to do. And then someone says, do it. You know? Okay, off I go to land of calm abiding. And uh, all of us can already are doing that for each other and we can continue to do that for each other. And we also don't know how we are already doing it for each other. We don't know sometimes how each of us is inspiring and encouraging others of us. But we are, which is wonderful. Uh, I'll just speak for about a few more minutes and then we will stop for some announcements and then continue on for those who want to stay for question and answer. So I just wanted to finish by sharing a little bit of the sutras that I read. I studied the Samdhi Namochana Sutra, which is a sutra I would not have thought that I would be able to read. It's sort of easy and difficult at the same time. If anyone's read it, you get these metaphors that repeat and you go like, yes, yes, I get that. I understand you've already given five examples of that same metaphor, like there is something red behind a crystal, so the crystal looks like a ruby, and there's something blue behind the crystal, and now it looks like a sapphire, and it just goes on like that, and then it says something that completely blows your mind, and you just have to read it over and over and over, and then go back to all of those metaphors that seem so straightforward, and then they really help you go, oh, I see. Ah, that makes sense now. Yes. So I read that sutra right through, which I had not done before. And again, with the support of Sangha, I, I listened to the class series that Kokyo gave in 2011 on that sutra. I listened to that, I think it was eight classes. And I listened to it through three times while I was there. So over and over, taking notes and you know, trying to deepen my understanding of the the sort of language that's used in that sutra. And Tenshin Roshi Reb Anderson also wrote uh, The Third Turning of the Wheel, which is about that sutra as well. So that was the main thing that I studied, but I also read the Platform, platform Sutra, which is just very, I mean, it's just 
lovely to read. It's just a beautiful thing to read. Uh, the Diamond Sutra, which is quite short and also lovely to read. And to know that for some people, a single line from some of these sutras completely woke them up, but transformed their lives, just one line from these sutras. So we can try and slow down and really read them and, and imagine how powerful they are and that they can be powerful for us. And I also read the Lotus Sutra, which I know some people here are reading aloud. Um, Tracy is reading it aloud with some friends and other people have read that sutra aloud as well. So it's a wonderful sutra. In the Samdhi Namojana Sutra, there was one thing that really kind of made me laugh because uh, it was so simple. Uh, the Buddha says, if you are having resistance to meditation, the way to overcome your resistance to meditation is to practice meditating. And I just, because I did have a bit of resistance to meditating. The first week I had more restlessness. It took a while for the restlessness to settle down. So when I read that line, I thought about that a lot. And thought, yes, just keep on doing Zazen and that will overcome the resistance. And of course, that's what we do at Santa Cruz Zen Center. We have a, an amazing sitting schedule here to help us all. Um, a couple of other things that I took away from it is a sort of a, a stronger commitment to want to turn myself towards objects of purification rather than objects of distraction. And it's not that specific things are objects of purification or distraction, it's how we see them and how we react to them, how we respond to them, how we understand them. But one way in which I am hoping that I can sustain is less, less time online, less, less time uh, just doing things that are, um, you know, that don't take much mental effort but aren't really terribly beneficial. They're not teaching me anything or deepening my understanding of reality in any particular way. So sort of doing less of that, a little less. So I hope that continues on. Uh, it, the, whole, the whole retreat really deepened my love of the Dharma, and deepened my love of all the teachings and just deepened my love. It really just deepened my love of everything, everything is very, is everything is fully permeated by Buddha nature without exception. And I felt that that was uh, felt more, more often while I was there and deepened my appreciation in that, in that way. Um, lastly, many of you do know that I'm moving back to Australia after 20 years of being in America. And I really want you all to know that I want you to stay connected to me if you can, if you want to. <laughs> don't, don't forget about me too much. I, I would love people to stay connected to me via email. And I'm making a website at the moment uh, that will be up next month and it'll be easy to find online. So please don't be shy about checking in with me every so often to make it easier for me as I transition to another country. All right. 
think that will do. So we'll just do um, a closing prayer and then announcements and then Q&A for anyone who wants to stay. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Siggy. Thank you, Nettie. That was wonderful to kind of vicariously experience your 29 days in the hut and your careful way in which you um, experience that. And I'm, I'm wondering if um, you ever hit the place or when you hit the place where you asked yourself, oh my goodness, what did I decide to do here? I don't think I can do this and wanted to bail. Did that ever happen to you or were you just in that beautiful flow of commitment the entire time you were there? Yeah, I, as soon as I arrived, I just had this thought, oh, I can do this. It didn't mean, though, that there weren't times when I was a bit restless, you know, where I would be sitting and thinking about food. <laughs> Definitely that happened quite a lot, sitting and thinking about peeling, you know, I'd be imagining peeling potatoes or cooking rice or something. But uh, no, I didn't, which was lovely. And, and that I attribute to the practice. The practice uh, tells us that we can do these things, that everybody can wake up. Everybody is a suitable person to be a, a practitioner, you know. Nobody, yeah, we can all do it. Very courageous, very brave, Betty. Good job. Uh, I just wondered, uh, since you live and see your teenage son every day, uh, how did you do with not seeing him, and how did he do without seeing his mother? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think he was fine without me, and I was fine without him, but I did notice how much I did have conversation in my head with people. Uh, and I think because I was on retreat, I tended to have conversations with um, Kokio in my head and with the Sangha. I would like, of course, I prepared this talk while I was there. I mean, this is what people do. This is what our mind does. Our mind just can't help but come up with stuff to think about. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't miss people because I didn't feel lonely because I felt held by everything in the teachings. Thank you for asking about my son. He's doing great, by the way. <laughs> Liz. Yeah, thank you for sharing the retreat. It was really encouraging. And um, I was wondering uh, at what point you remembered uh, that teaching about uh, resistance to Zazen. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, 
Yeah, that that sounded really wonderful that that occurred to you. And also, it sounds very natural to think about food. I can imagine I would think about food. It's just kind of a statement about our core humanity that we, uh, on some physical level, we're just kind of some part of us, a big part of us cellularly is just engaged with um, carrying on. So yeah, it's kind of sweet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, luckily, I think I, I read that. I think it was in Chapter 10 of the Sandina Mochana Sutra that that uh, the Buddha is referred to as Bhagavan in that sutra. It was in that chapter somewhere in the first week or so. And so that was very helpful. It gave me resolve to go right. Because I don't actually have resistance to Zazen when I'm with other people. I have more difficulty as maybe some people might feel similarly sitting alone I find a little I have a little more trouble being disciplined sitting alone so of course I was there for 29 days kind of alone and uh, so that's where the schedule was particularly helpful I, I had an internal rule that I just couldn't break that schedule in terms of the sitting I could I could uh, I let myself be a little shifted a little forward or a little back in relation to when I finished studying or when I started cooking that I let that move back and forth a little bit just as what felt natural and appropriate but the actual sitting periods I I made an internal rule there was no compromising them they had to be 40 minutes and if they started three minutes late then they ended three minutes after that sort of thing so that that uh, that was good for the sort of little feelings of resistance that occasionally did did come up was nope time to sit Kathy yeah you know as you're sharing that Nettie I'm appreciating that you really did give yourself the experience of a practice period because my experience being at Tassahara is that the schedule they say the schedule is the teacher And, you know, a lot of us, when we go there, we go there because we trust this external um, encouragement to follow the schedule. And that's really where I think the core of the, a lot of the teachings of a practice period comes from. So, you know, hats off to you that you were there without anybody, you know, checking in on you. And yet you maintained the spirit of the practice period. And so it sounds like you really we're able in a you know condensed period of time to receive what can actually really be the profound benefits of that practice because it is a slippery slope you know once you start fudging then the door opens and you know it it it's sort of all over so you're you were wise to hold that tightly and i i'm happy for you that even with the cancellation of tasahara that you were really able to to give yourself that gift and give your your community and future students that gift. Thank you, Kathy. Ah, it's uh, Joyce. Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm wondering, a person of your caliber going in with some trepidation who among us would be able to even entertain the thought of doing something like this? I mean, it, it just seems like if you had some kind of trepidation, then I would be completely fearful. 
well, I'm just confessing. I mean, we all confess because we, we're all just people. You could, you know, I'm not saying that you could, that you should do it, but I think it's good for us to consider that we all could if conditions made themselves available to do something like that. And I think what's important is that we each just um, be willing to lean in a little to what feels a little scary for us and just lean into it. And this, I'm glad you, you asked this question, Joyce, because I was thinking how often Sangha members know better than us what we're capable of. And sometimes it's other people in the Sangha, and, and that often can be our teachers, that say, what about trying this thing? Uh, and internally we might go like, oh, my God, no, I, I don't think I could try that thing. And then they just go like, oh, okay. And then a year later they go, what about trying this thing again? And you go like, I'm not so sure, you know. And then they just say it again. And then you go like, okay, <laughs> all right, I'll try it. Uh, so sometimes it's explicit like that, a teacher just gently giving you the nudge. But I think we each can do that for each other and that we can see, sometimes we can see better other some we can see in each other each other's capacity better than sometimes we can see it ourselves because I think often people do have a sense of um, being aware we're all aware of our neuroses we're all aware of our fears and our anxieties uh, but that's okay we can have fears and anxieties and we can be a little bit neurotic we can have all of those things but someone else can look at us and see our true nature and see our courage and see our strength and uh, just you know, gently say, hey, have you ever thought about doing that? Or even just simply by modelling it and doing it, we think, wow, if they can do it, then maybe I can do it, which is exactly what I said at the beginning of this talk, that, the, that my hope that this talk might make some people feel they could do something that they previously thought they couldn't do. So thank you, Joyce, for asking that question. Patrick. Could you try showing us the picture of your hut again? Okay. That's uh, the problem. There it is. That's thank beautiful. You, so that's the little hut that I stayed in. Oh, it's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's sweet. And these are all um, oak trees. I guess I don't know the names of the different types of oak, but I, I just think of them as live oaks. Is that right, Liz? Something like that? Maybe other kinds too, yeah. But Maybe they're, they're not oaks. Maybe there's something else. What do you do you know what they are, Liz? Can you tell? I can't tell, but okay. maybe All not. right, I'll stop sharing. Oh, thank you, Jean. It was just a double click and I did a single click. That was the only problem. They do look like live oaks. I spent a lot of time around oaks here in Austin, and they they, they look like live oaks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of our time. Oh, Tracy. Well, well just, well, I, I can chat with you sometime. Your comment about objects of purification, that was really... That really intrigued me. But you know, you were just la that last conversation you were just having with, with Choice about how it might seem challenging, but I really feel from you, Nettie, what you were saying before, how how going into this, 
how connected, that was the word you kept using, connected to the, well, we could call them supports, but, well, to everything through things like zazen, forms, sutras, teachings, sangha. Like, it really feels from what you said that, like, all of that was with you, and you felt like really, would you say that was, that's that's correct? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And every day I did do a, um, a dedication and chanted the So Shaimyo Kichijo Dorani for removing mm-hmm. hindrances for our sangha, and that mm-hmm. felt beautiful to do that, you know, like just a conscious, intentional, caring about the sangha once a day. I did that little ceremony. Mm. you feel very rooted to me in in all of that and that's what you know just that that's do, doing it all for you <laughs> yeah. i mean in a way right we're just you're you're, you're just kind of plugging you're you're plugging into what's already taking note of what's already there that's yeah. right that's right. And in that sense, it actually was really very easy because of all that support. And I think support's a really good yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for being here and keeping our sangha going. And, uh, see you all soon. Thank you, Nettie. You're welcome. Thank you, Nettie. Lovely and inspiring. Thank you, Nettie. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night, everyone.